You're listening to the Voices of Open Government, a show from the Open Government Partnership. In this podcast, we'll share conversations on how we can do government differently and explore ways to renew our democracies, making them more transparent, participatory, inclusive, and accountable. I'm your host, Stephanie Bluma. In today's episode, we'll explore how increasing transparency and public participation in procurement can lead to better outcomes in health and education and other public services, especially at the local level. With us today is Timothy Kiprano. He is the founder and executive director of the Open Governance Institute in Kenya. Also with us is John Maritim. He is from the Elgeo Marquette county government, where he has served for more than a decade as an economist. Tim and John, thank you both for joining us. So, Tim, let me start with you. Um, I know very recently there's been news about a new variant and all sorts of things going on in the world. What is um, life like there currently? Uh, Thank you uh, for having us uh, this evening. I think... um, Basically, I think we, we're kind of like trying to get back to life after Corona. Um, slow, but, you know, there's a good progress, you know, resuming uh, a normal life. The the thing is that COVID disrupted everything, you know, was uh, lives and everything else. But in terms of the work that we're doing, I think we're getting back to normal. A, bu- a few challenges here and there, um, if you talk about, you know, uh, public gatherings and and travels and things like that, they're still kind of limited, not because of regulations, but because of fear or I call it that a new way of life uh, that people don't want to travel a lot. People have this feeling of not interacting um, uh, a lot, but also then there are regulations where government are not yet, you know, um, open to holding public participation as it were, you know, at the beginning because of also, you know, just trying to see how can we manage this um, pandemic uh, and things like that. But also then thinking about how do we, you know, make sure people are still able to give government ideas and and, 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 and thoughts on their plans and, and processes. So it's kind of slow, but there's a very good progress. That's great. And John, what, um, what are some of the issues that... Um are addressed through the OGP process. Maybe for our listeners, talk a little bit about um, Ilego Marakat for those who might not be familiar. Yes, Ilego Marakat is uh, the size of around 3,000 kilometers square. It's one of the 47 local government established in the constitution passed in 2010. It, uh, in terms of size, it's one of the smallest uh, counties. But in terms of contribution to the gross domestic product at the national level, it is uh, one of the top five. So it can already tell you that the uh, the county is an, uh, an economic powerhouse by itself. What the, the OGB is currently doing, one of the development challenges that we've been facing is not necessarily the availability of resources or enough finances to to deliver on the plans that we have as a county government. It is, we realized by 2016, we, we had been in operation for three years since 2013 to 2016, uh, out of uh, devolution 
of the constitution. But by the first uh, three years, we, we realized that we may it it could be more of the usage of the resources available more than seeking for more resources. And that's how OGP came about. For one, the OGP now comes to make sure that there is efficiency in the resources that we have, that we allocate in terms of, one, ensuring that uh, we involve the public in the decision of the, of the monies that are available for public goods. Also ensuring that the decision that we get in the involvement of engaging the public goes into the decision of government in terms of delivering those projects. And secondly, ensuring that we are so open in the procurement processes of our public goods in such a way that there are least losses in terms of uh, corruption uh, and in terms of uh, efficiency in delivery of public services. So so for us, uh, uh, that is the, the journey of the OGP in terms of addressing the challenges that we faced in the first three years and that uh, prompted us to join OGP in 2016. Great. And could you just tell us a little bit about... Um, your career in government and, and what your role is currently? I've worked in government for now. This is my this is my 16th year, actually 17th. The first eight in the national government as an economist, the Ministry of Finance and Economic Planning, but mainly posted to the regions as an economist and as a development officer. We are leading in the planning, uh, budgeting for the regions. At the last nine years, I've worked for Elige Marakwet being one of uh, uh, the uh, 47 local governments in Kenya. We call them county governments. Uh, since 2013, I've been working as the director in charge of economic planning and budgeting. And uh, as part of the reform process in uh, uh, in addressing the hiccups that we faced in the first few years of uh, devolution when the county came to be, uh, we joined OGP, and uh, since we joined in 2016, I've been the point of contact for the OGP for our local government. That's great. And Tim, I know you were involved in um, what we call OGP Local early on. Can you talk about what you think the benefits are of the Open Government Partnership to to the county government? I think we've been part of the journey with Elgeo since 2016 when they joined um, and of course, uh, when uh, the OGP pioneered um, the OGP local, uh, which was then called subnational, um, and I think it's been a very interesting journey, uh, both from a civil society perspective, but also from a government perspective. So one thing that uh, even as kind of talk about the benefits of open government, um, you know, for localities like Elgeo Managuet County, I can start talking about. Um, the unintended, um, uh, you know, benefits, for example, you talk about because of Elgeo's image globally being part of the OGP, uh, process is that there, there are partners who then, you know, um, are open and willing to come and work with Elgeo for that support the development agenda, especially from systems and process point of view, because one thing that globally, I think we need to learn is that improvement of systems and processes in localities that are still developing and localities that are facing resource constraints is very difficult, especially for government reformers, uh, because the competition for resources means anything that is not tangible or will not count in terms of, let's say, water project or healthcare, you know, uh, delivery or that does not support health delivery uh, uh, services will always come second to anything else. Um, and so 
LKOs, you know, being part of the Open Government Partnership, I think kind of like worked on the advantage because partners were now able to come in and see how can we support the systems that then citizens are not able to allocate resources through public participation systems and processes like that. Now, in terms of civil society, I think there are a lot of benefits. Um, one of them being, so it's very easy for civil society to engage government and to advocate. So there's very little confrontation um, because uh, reformers within government, people like Maritim and uh, everyone else who are brought on board or, you know, to continue this process are not foreign to reforming, are not foreign to, you know, improving systems or processes or, or, or services, you know, um, if that focus involves services. A lot of civil society work is heavily reliant on information that is provided by government. And, and so that doing advocacy, and especially for civil society who write on evidence like ourselves, without information that is actual, that is accurate, that is timely, then it becomes very difficult even engaging government because government will always push back. Government will listen, and, 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 and that's one thing I've learned. But they will only listen if you are objective, if you are rational, if your argument is based on facts, if your argument is based on evidence. So without that information, then it becomes difficult for civil society to engage. So I think those are about three benefits that I would say grew out of participating in the OGP program. That's great. Thank you. And and John, um, my understanding, there was an interesting project that you worked on regarding increasing transparency in the medicine supply chain. I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about that commitment, how it came about and what the results may have been. Yes, the main objective of that commitment was to shed light on the distribution of uh, uh, medical supplies, not only the medical drugs, including also non-pharmaceuticals that are necessary to deliver on the mandate of delivery of health to, to the citizens. Now, how this um, commitment came to be or how we identified as an, an as, a, as a governance uh, challenge was that, uh, well, I'm also in charge of, uh, I'm the director also in charge of budget. And um, in our own estimations, we, are, we, we estimated that we need close to uh, $1 million every year for medical drugs. You know, we have around 125 uh, health facilities across uh, our county government, that's our local government. Now, we estimated based on the visitations of patients to those facilities over the years. And uh, when we're doing budgets, we use those ones to ascertain how much each facility will require for medical drugs. So collectively, in, in a year, we estimated and budgeted for around $1 million. But towards the three quarters of the year, we observed that the, the, the facilities have run out of drugs. So you, you, you ask ourselves, as disease prevalence increased, and when we investigate on the visitations on, from the hospital records, we find out that no, actually, probably our preventive interventions elsewhere have worked and we have less visitation. So ideally, you will expect uh, the, uh, the drugs to go slower compared to the previous financial years, but it was opposite. The drugs have gone uh, faster. So it, it pointed to the fact that there are malpractices in terms of manage, management of the drug supplies. In terms of, in Kenya, the private uh, uh, pharmacies do very well. Yeah. So you, a patient will go to a government facility and is prescribed for the disease that has been ascertained uh, for him, and then is told drugs have run out. 
Yeah. So, so the patient will have to go out and buy. So we went out again in our local pharmacies and ascertained how much of the drugs are bought from referrals from our health facility. And we, we are certain that the same number of patients are being billed twice in our records. They have been billed to have been given drugs while also in the private pharmacies they have been, uh, uh given drugs. So we, we identify that there is a, there is a leakage in terms of, uh, accountability in drugs. And we say that to put this uh, governance issue and for the public to be able to uh, uh, to access drugs, we have to commit this. The second bit of it is we also realized that uh, the management of the distribution of drugs was not based on demand because our region here, there are diseases which are more prevalent in one side of our county. So you'll find you will require drugs for a certain disease more in one region compared to another. So you, you will expect that the distribution will be in line with those uh, projections on the disease prevalence. But unfortunately, uh, drugs will be distributed equally. So we came up with this uh, system and committed in the OGP so that whenever drugs are budgeted for and ordered, then we know facility A will require more of this type of drugs because of the disease prevalence and less of the other. So that uh, there are no drugs expiring uh, reaching cell by date in another facility when it is highly required in another facility elsewhere in the, within the same county. So it was a way of opening up the drugs so that uh, they reach where they're intended. Yeah, that's great. There's a lot there, but it, it sounds like through transparency and some accountability and, and other open government values, you were able to, one, stop patients from paying twice um, and stop leakage in the system and then better organize the system to really address patient needs. I think it's a great example. Tim, I'm wondering on that specific example, what was the role of civil society in terms of helping to craft or push that commitment? One of the things that we wanted to achieve in the co-creation process itself was more inclusion, you know, more voices of citizens counting, you know, in terms of uh, deciding and identifying areas to commit but also then the needs of communities will be better addressed by those commitments so that the commitments are not just for the sake of commitments, but commitments that will have an impact eventually. From the co-creation process, uh, civil society and citizens add questions. Um, so the first question is that, so you have a budget, you know, um, a budget line in the budget allocated for drugs, um, which Maritim was mentioning um, uh, being about a million dollars. The question was that when you go to hospitals, you don't get drugs. You're being given prescription to go purchase drugs from outside facilities. So there was a question of, is this a problem of underfunding of the medical supplies? Or is there a problem in the supply chain? Or is it that the procurement process is not delivering the kind of drugs that were required. Some drugs expired in some hospital because, I mean, there were no one was using them. And so the question was, how did those kind of drugs end up, you know, in places or in zones where those diseases are not prevalent in those zones? Now, so the conclusion was that there is a need to kind of like dig deep to understand a little more about what is not happening um, and how the drugs you know, management process is functioning. And one of, one of the things that citizens wanted to do was, can we, first of all, 
take stock of what is the quantity of drugs required and is the budget allocated sufficient to cater for that. The second then was, can the drugs management system be opened up so that people are able to track drug supply from the point of procurement to the point of delivery? Hospital systems or the healthcare system is a system that has been there and is very established. And so bringing a new system and a new change to that kind of system is not easy within a short time frame. So this was a need identified by civil society and citizens during co-creation process. We ran that challenge through government, especially the relevant government departments um, in health and, um, of course, finance and economic planning, which is more or less the head of the rest of uh, the departments, to just confirm, is this a real issue or is this, is this a perceived problem? And uh, we were very happy that the government actually confirmed that actually there is, there is a challenge in terms of uh, drugs management, confirmed that drugs expire at some point, confirmed that citizens are being given prescriptions to go get drugs outside, you know, government facilities. And so there was general agreement between government and citizens that we need a system that can help government become more efficient and serve citizens better and be able to respond, you know, to needs of citizens on timely fashion. I think what's interesting about this story is it, it has accountability, transparency, participation, and inclusion. And those are words we often talk about a lot, but this is actually showing how those values are put into action. And I think what it's also showing is that this isn't easy. So this was a project that civil society and citizens brought to government, government worked with them. But, you know, I've heard you talk about the different geographies, the different settings, the different hospitals, the different parts of the system that needed to be fixed. And you had to look at all of that and bring it together, which is why I think this is is interesting because it's an example of what can happen, how you can solve problems when you bring together the community to really work through it. So I congratulate you on that example. Um, I have a few more here that I were talking about. One I was interested in is um, I know that you also have an interesting approach to open contracting because that it looks at groups like women and youth and who's been left out or who's been included. John, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you guys think about and approach the open contracting process. Before we joined OGPN, that is what prompted us in terms of open contracting is one, you will find that you, we, we have contractors, let's say, for example, in our, in our government, we have like 300 public contracts every year. And back then, in the first three years of devolution up to 2016, you will get out of those 300 and with the many contractors registered in our system, close to 500 to 1,000, you will find that one contractor will take up to 10% of uh, the 300 or so projects. So that alone pointed to the fact that involvement in decision-making is limited to a few decision-makers. So we realized that we need to commit on open contracting to eliminate the over and over award of contracts with the same people. One, how do you do that? By publishing information on the procurement calls that we say we bid. So, so by opening the bid, then uh, if anyone wanted to play any monkey business, what will happen is uh, the public will see now, that means you have more contractors accessing the ones. But now there is an element of inclusive access to, to these public uh, works. Because in the past, it will be 
the people who have probably accumulated uh, capital over the years and they have known people within government they know how to fill uh, the, the, how to fill the forms required to acquire, I mean uh, quotations and bids very well uh, they are the people who can be able to uh, uh, they don't have to to apply for loans in the bank they have already running capital now up to that time we realized that something has to be done for the special interest groups this is the the women people with disabilities the youth whose experience in the delivery of uh, or implementation of uh, of public goods is limited it just came after the presidential directive that 30% of our of our public projects has to be implemented by those special interest groups now how do you facilitate these uh, three categories of special interest groups to compete favorably with the established uh, uh, companies who have been in this business for long one so we committed to train these groups to fast track their knowledge in terms of uh, implementation of project secondly is to ensure that the reservation of the 30% kind of does not uh, really put them in direct competition with the established uh, guys so that the same special interest groups can have their reserved uh, uh, procurement percentage while also uh, from the capacity that we build in them they can be able to even access the 70% because they, uh, we have fast track their their processes secondly is most of them didn't know how to file even tax returns and as you know some of the checklist for bidding of projects will be have you do you have tax clearance uh, certificates and such so some of them don't even have arrears with our, our revenue authority here only that they don't know how to fill them so by uh, the, our government committing to this open uh, uh, contracting it meant that there are support uh, actions that we do as government to ensure that they, these special interest groups can be able to compete and have we succeeded that's the question yes we have succeeded to some extent there are still emerging challenges one of which is uh, the same youth or the same women groups or the same people disabilities groups will end up even colluding with the established uh, uh, contractors and that is where now we come in with the beneficial ownership uh, element within the open contracting to ensure that the company's bidding we know the owners so that we can look and say the owners in these special interest groups are not the same owners that are hiding in the special interest group and they are in the bigger uh, established group so in a way the government does both the facilitative element and does the enforcement element and does the what we call the capacity building so that all of them can have equal access to the public procurement it's another story of how things are hard <laughs> where you're looking at this large problem and breaking it down into different elements you know all the way down to helping people figure out how to file the tax certificates um, and then bringing in beneficial ownership to really find out where the, the money is going. And I think these are two areas that are very much growing within the open government partnership. And Tim, I want to turn to you because I know you've worked with others in Kenya. And I know it looks like Kaduna, Kagoma, Sekundi, Takarati in Ghana. Can you talk a little bit about how the open government partnership can take what Kenya's done and help others learn from it or vice versa what is the open government partnership do for the reformers that are part of it in learning from other examples um actually we uh maritim and myself uh today just came from um a peer learning event um organized by one of the new 
entrance uh, here in Kenya, uh, Nandi County. So today we kind of like um, hosted um, an exchange and, and networking event uh, in Nandi, um, purposely for Elgeo to share experiences of the reform journey, uh, being part of OGP for the last four years, and how has it been like um, watching Nandi and know how should be aware in terms of opportunities and challenges as well, so that they can start anticipating. And I think uh, one way, uh, just to answer your question, is through continuous learning uh, and exchanges, like what we just did. Elgeo has done similar thing before, um, hosting all the African uh, local governments um, uh, around 2019, if I recall for a while. So all of them from Africa came to Elgeo Managua County to just benchmark, learn from Elgeo, but also bring lessons to things that Elgeo would want to learn more. Now, this recording or this conversation already that we're having here is one way to learn. And um, I would encourage OGB to do more of this because some of us are not communication experts. So we have a lot of information in our minds. We have a lot of records in, you know, in our documents and, and, and all that. But until someone pokes us to kind of reflect and share, we will not share because I mean, we think those are normal things that we do. Those are normal processes that we do every day. If the opportunities kind of like connect, learn together, share are not provided. So what I would encourage is that a continuous support for learning and exchange um, or encouragement for these local governments to continuously learn together could be one way to do so. The other one is through this kind of conversation that we're having here, but more of the writing, you know, so that then Maritime Inigeo can be asked to reflect on one particular issue. And can you write an article about that? Writing is, I would say, is the from my little knowledge of communication and the most effective ways of communication is that it, it actually comes towards the last as the most effective way of communication because there are a lot of reports that IRM produced. There are a lot of, um, you know, action plans that we produce. There are a lot of reports implementing those action plans that we produce that people don't read. But if we're able to kind of like pick all these big documents and then, you know, summarize them into very interesting you know, videos or, or podcasts like this, then I would imagine someone can listen to a podcast while doing something else, you know, and then of course that also encourages them <laughs> to reflect on their own experiences and do the same, you know, share their own experiences through the same platforms uh, so that then others are able to, 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 to learn. Yeah, that's great. And I think it's a great, <laughs> it's a great segue for me to remind people to follow and like the podcast um, so that more people will hear about it and learn about it. I know I've been learning a lot um, by speaking to people directly, and it's good to hear people's comments and feedback on it as well. So I have one final question for both of you, and that is, um, as 2021 is OGP's 10th anniversary, so we're entering a new decade, um, you know, kind of OGP's second decade. What is your vision for um, OGP or just open government in general over the next 10 years, which based on a lot of things we've been seeing are not going to be easy. Kind of going back to hard things are going to be hard. So Tim, why don't I start with you? Um, what's your, your vision for open government moving forward? Um, so first of all, I mean, I, I, I must really, you know, uh, appreciate the, the efforts and the work that goes uh, in the background to, you know, get the reform agenda going for the last uh, 10 years. So one thing that I, I'm looking forward to 
um and and this comes from um uh, personal experience engaging with um you know elgeo supporting their co-creation and eventually supporting the implementation as well is that i would like ogp to kind of streamline their workings in terms of the kind of support they provide to the local governments so one is that there's need for better recognition for um especially in the global south for reforming systems for opening up um for for standing tall you know and and pushing this agenda maybe you know summits we can recognize some of these champions and you know it may not be material but just recognizing that there are people working you know uh, to push this agenda and that they put a lot of effort they work in environments that are very difficult to work in but they still push that agenda the other one is that i remember when we co-created for elgeo we got support from the world bank under the maldona uh, trust fund so we did a very nice co-creation now coming to the implementation there were challenges that i think elgeo you know kind of like was struggling with in terms of resources to implement some of those commitments first of all being a loner in government uh, you know trying to reform but then you go outside trying to struggle for the resources as well I would imagine there's a lot of struggle. And and now I think the next phase for GP even as they begin another ticket. If we can improve that on that aspect, like how do we support processes but also then don't leave you know the reformers midway of the journey uh, of the reform journey that they're going but give them the support they need to push that. But then amplify the work that they do. So I would like OGP in the next phase to kind of think about how can we make the work that reformers within government stand out so that even if there are few then it inspires you know others within government to say well yeah there are actually good things that happen as a result of opening up or pushing for open reforms uh, within government yeah i think that's great and um i love how you took the the vision and and turned it back on us as a challenge for the next 10 years i think that's very important for us as we plan things moving forward and i encourage um those who are listening i think this is a great topic how do we spotlight um reformers and how do we uh, invest in the co-creation process but also in the implementation so love your input there um john i'll turn back to you the question was what's the vision but um i do like um also you know getting into the challenges as well so what is your vision and what do you see are the challenges moving forward Uh, I I said that we've come from far and I believe where we're going is is shorter than where we've come from. And uh so my vision for the next decade will be so OGB being a platform where the citizens can claim ownership. The civil society can claim ownership and the government can claim ownership. So to to me in my mind I I have OGP as a convergence of interest Uh, where everyone claims to own it with with no uh, percentage of shares if I can use it just to say I belong here and that is my vision for 10 years and uh, how this can be achieved is by by building capacities building interest to be able to carry the OGB drive or the desired change that we want to see in society want to see in government when this uh, open government uh, uh, collaborative leadership collaborative came i was very excited because the, the the objective is as much as we are focusing on on the reforms what about the reformer how do you manage frustrations timothy i will tell you 
that uh, many a times I've told him, uh, you know, man, I don't think I can go ahead with this. Yeah, because of the challenges that he raised. <laughs> so when these such uh, trainings come, it forms part of the journey towards the vision that we decide. And I'm very happy that uh, OGP could think beyond the reforms and focus on the reformer. That's, I think you actually summed this up really well. Um, moving forward, you know, in the next decade, one area we really need to look at is focusing on the reformer in addition to the reform. So thank you both for joining us today. I thought this was a really fascinating conversation. Um, so thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you guys. Stay blessed. Thank you so much. hope you liked today's episode. Please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review our show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. For the latest updates on open government, you can also follow OGP on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Before we go, we'd like to say a special thank you to our producers at Human Group Media for making this podcast possible. Thank you for tuning in, and I hope to catch you again on our next episode.